Welcome to the One Player Podcast. I'm your host, Albert, and this is episode almost 150. Have you seen the yellow sign? Hey, welcome back, everybody. How you doing? Uh, episode is almost number 150. It's so exciting. It's actually 149 in case you've lost count. All right, Albert. I believe that today we're here to discuss Arkham Horror, The Path to Carcosa. So... Albert, have you had any chance to play Arkham Horror recently? No, I've not played Carcosa. Okay, well, in that case... Alright, I'm here instead with a guest host. Uh, I'm here together with Tyler Moore, a fellow local Memphis native and someone else who likes to play the game with me, Arkham Horror. Uh, Tyler, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, so I, I came in my finest podcasting clothes, Top Hat and Tails. Uh, I've been a solo gamer for not so long. I think that Julius helped me along in, uh, in that, as well as being a graduate student in computer science. It means that sometimes I can't make it out to the shop. Um, but uh, I've been a gamer for a long time. Uh, started in uh, my teens at the comic book shop, and it's progressed from there, uh, from card games all the way to board games. Uh, I think that Arkham Horror is a... Uh, I think, great picture of the game, kind of games that I enjoy. I enjoy deck building. I enjoy the solo experience of theory crafting on cards. Uh, I enjoy spoilers. So that taps into all of that, you know, teenage CCG stuff, all the way to the solo experience of playing through the scenarios, story-based. I'm a big fan of RPGs. So, yeah, no, I think it's, uh, it's pretty great. So just to make it clear... This is not becoming an Arkham Horror podcast or anything like that. There are some excellent podcasts out there. I definitely direct you over to Drawn to the Flame podcast and Mythos Busters, two excellent podcasts that are devoted just to content for Arkham Horror, the card game. But I am personally a big fan of the card game. I continue to collect everything I can collect for it and really enjoy the game. It's still, I mentioned this back when we reviewed the initial core set ages ago at this point in time, that... It is a game that is consuming more of my playing time than anything else, and it still continues to do so. Um, even not just for review products, not just because I want to review it or develop content for it, but it is a game that continues to see more of my playtime than anything else in my collection. It continues to consume more of my dollars than anything else in my collection, that is very true, but it still is taking a lot of my playtime. And I feel like I want to be able to express some of my excitement and enjoyment for the game by continuing to review these campaigns as they come out. So fully expect to hear from me back when we get done with the next one, The Forgotten Age, which I'm excited to be releasing, which should be coming out very soon or already released by the time you hear this podcast. But talking about the path to Carcosa, this is something I definitely wanted to go through. I've heard a comment from a number of people that say... You know, if I'm listening to these other podcasts as I go through, I can't listen to them all the way through because I'm waiting to do the whole campaign all at once. And I I certainly hear that, and I'm definitely just going to give you an option. I fully expect you to continue doing this, and I expect you to continue doing this after a full campaign is released. So if you're looking for that kind of content, I will say that I expect that I'll be continuing to produce that kind of content for people who want to sort of hear a post-mortem about the whole campaign when the whole campaign is released. That being said, we're going to go ahead and get on into it. This is Arkham Horror, The Path to Carcosa. Talking about the overall, just 
in general about some of the new mechanics for the whole thing. I think the first new mechanic I want to discuss today is the idea of doubt and conviction. This campaign started us off with this requiring us to essentially track doubt versus conviction. The theme of this campaign was about this mental dichotomy, a double thing going on, where you're not sure if what your characters are experiencing is reality or if they're insane and reality is absolutely normal, but they are experiencing all of these insane things. Doubt and conviction is sort of your way of tracking which way your characters are leaning about what their beliefs are. And tracking those elements will have changes in how the campaign plays out. One of these campaign scenarios is basically two different scenarios based on whether you're on the doubt side or the conviction side. And it's very interesting to continue to track that and how you build it and how you might necessarily want to game the mechanics to try and hit at that doubt and conviction of what you want to do with that. So it's an interesting mechanic, and I know that later scenarios we're going to be having Vengeance coming up in Forgotten Age. This is an interesting thing to develop and helps really build the idea that your campaign is growing through the whole course of it. Did you have any ideas about the Diamond Conviction time? Yeah, so I thought it was really thematic. Um, I also like that it serves um, a lot of different masters. So it's because it is thematic, when you're making choices at the end of a scenario... Um, if you're just sort of choosing based on the role that your character is playing, if you go the sort of RPG route, um, or if you're just sort of trying to make the most interesting like story decision, um, you don't know quite whether that's going to be doubt or conviction or neither uh, until you sort of read the, the mechanical outcome. And you can sort of maybe think about, does this mean that I'm denying the events that happened? Does this mean that I'm buying into it? Does this mean that I'm choosing a different option entirely? And so you can sort of game it that way. But I think that it serves a, a story um, in a really interesting way. And it also allows the campaign guide, I think, to respond to you. And even later on, uh, we might talk about this, some different cards to respond to you specifically based on uh, prior decisions that you've made. And I think that it's a, it's a really robust way for the campaign to take the player decisions in aggregate and then just sort of distill them down into a simple effect, either in the game or a simple comment or story hook uh, at the end of a scenario. I'm going to mention this also throughout a lot of the course of the scenario. For me, the blind playthrough of this one is intense, I would say, because it allows you to experience these as the characters would. So for me, when I'm running through the first time, doubt and conviction is raw. Do I have doubt or do I have conv conviction? It's not the characters at that point. It's directly me. And I found that for me, I the my blind playthrough wavered from doubt and then moved straight into conviction pretty hard. And, and having that level of, of ability to affect the gameplay mechanics was an interesting choice. The next mechanic I wanted to talk about was the idea of hidden, another new mechanic. And in this one, you're getting a set of cards that are coming into your hand. And these are scenario cards. You're limited with how you can get rid of them. It may take extra actions to get rid of, similar to like weaknesses, or you have to do something else. Or later on in the game, you have to go damage characters or just go absolutely insane to get rid of them. And this hidden mechanic, let me start with you, Tyler. What did you think about the hidden mechanic? I think it's great. Uh, I think that um, the designer has gone on record as saying that he will never or very rarely would he consider introducing something like a traitor mechanic. Uh, but I think that this is... Uh, kind of a first step towards that because uh, it gives players um, mechanical walls that they have to work around that make them make 
basically subpar decisions. So they're doing suboptimal things for th reasons that you don't understand because of these hidden cards. Um, I hope that it's continued to uh, be explored in future encounter sets uh, because I think it's really interesting. And um, I think because of my background uh, as, a, as a grad student, uh, I also like things when they're orderly and together, and so I like rules a, a lot. Uh, and so reading through the hidden mechanic, I think that there are going to be a lot of FAQs about um, maybe some of these cards, not necessarily, but in the future if they do continue to explore it, because hidden cards exist in two different zones. They're considered to be both in your threat area, which makes them active, which means that the text on them is su supposed to be used, but they're also in your hand, but they can't be discarded except by the effect on the card that might discard them. Uh, and so there, I think there's lots of these interlayered um, effects of these hidden cards, which might make it difficult as, you know, this card game complexifies. Uh, and so I'm simultaneously worried about that uh, because I don't want to get in a blind playthrough and end up in a position where I have no idea how to move forward because of something like that mechanically, and I have to take the grim rule. Um, or uh, later on, when we do see an FAQ, something seems completely nonsensical because, like, some of the mechanic doesn't make sense. <laughs> I think that for me, I actually am less of a fan of the hidden mechanic. Um, for me, having it in my hand means that quite often I'm forgetting that. I'm trying to actually usually keep it in front of my hand so that it's very visible to me. But then I'll lay my hand down and I'll almost sometimes forget it's there because I'm not always picking up my hand. And to tell you the truth, when I'm playing with other players, especially because a lot of the game moves faster and easier if you trust everyone to play their game well and you're not trying to quarterback and see what sort of stuff they're doing like why didn't you go over there i will miss some easily seen times where i'm like well why are you not doing this thing right you're not moving twice and i'll miss it when someone else is doing it so i won't see that they're doing any suboptimal plays and were i to see that they're doing a suboptimal play i would say oh well it's obviously because of your hidden mechanic so for me i look at it like what was this hidden mechanic trying to do? It's trying to engender doubt and suspicion about your other players' mechanics so that it's not completely clear to you about what they want to do. But either you don't care, you weren't thinking about it to me, or you notice it and then it just becomes entirely clear. For me, I really would have just preferred if these things would have been in your threat area avoid the whole thing about hiding them in your hand and not mess around with all of this in the mechanic. I was just personally not a fan of this particular mechanic. Yeah, I would say as a, as a counterpoint, um, having them in your hand, I think, does an additional thing. It, there's not much in the game that uh, limits your options. I found that in our multiplayer playthrough, um, we would get to the point where people would have 15 or 20 resources on the table because we're, you know, that kind of deck builder. <laughs> um, and, uh, and we're real greedy, and we would have a full hand of cards, and so we'd have all these options. Uh, and so having these cards in your hand does sort of like push down your hand size. Um, and so I, I think there are a lot of interesting things there. I would also say that um, there are layers to how a table of players can interact with this. As a solo player, though, uh, I think that it does basically boil down to that. Uh, I might recommend, Julius, I know that you love new bits, uh, get, get some hand, <laughs> get some hand holders, man. So I've got uh, I've got some uh, Uber stacks uh, that work real well, so I can have all the cards on the table basically stacked up in front of me. Don't don't just pick up and put down your hand all the time. I know it takes up some some table space, but come on. 
I may consider it. Yes, I am definitely a fan of Extra Bits. I don't think I've talked about very many of the Extra Bits that I've built and published on this podcast, but I may mention some more of those later on. Um, but I will certainly think about it before I continue in that line. Um, that said, let's go ahead and move on to Scenario 1. Scenario 1 being curtain color, as I call it. Let's go to the movies. Mm-hmm. Um the idea, so let's talk about a rubric, actually. So those who are familiar with our podcast know that whenever we're reviewing games, I like to have a rubric for how we go through things. So when we're talking about um, these and hopefully any future times where we have a chance to talk about Arkham Horror, first thing we're going to talk about is the hook. What is the hook? How did the hook convey? And then we're going to be talking about how complicated was this scenario? How were the rules for the scenario? Was it difficult to understand? Was it difficult to play through? I'll then talk about the mechanics and the gameplay. What new ideas came from the hook, came from playing through the scenario. I'll then talk about the story and the theme of that particular campaign, how it meshed with the overall one, how it conveyed its own story, and then maybe any other overall or miscellaneous thoughts. So starting with the first one, Curtain Call. In terms of its hook, I think that maybe you can debate with me about what the hook for this one was, but to me, I think the hook was... um, as you got to the second half of the campaign, it introduced this new mechanic that you would have this either spreading ooze or fire or water that would have different mechanics as it spread out. And that's what I think really the hook was for this campaign. Do you think that also was the hook, or do you think the Royal Emissary was the hook? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think that the, the thing that would keep me coming back to this scenario is that uh, sort of triplicate outcome chosen randomly. Uh, it is a very hard scenario because of a lot of the different elements that are involved in it, like you mentioned, the emissary, uh, as well as these, you know, fire, flood, or ooze. Um, but yeah, I, I think that I really like this scenario, but I think it is kind of messy in that way. I think that there's a lot going on, and I wonder, uh, I see a lot of chatter online about maybe how difficult this is, and as a solo player, somebody that plays true solo, I think that sometimes even with my uber stacks holding my hand, uh, literally and figuratively, uh, playing two-handed is really tough uh, for me. I really like the one-handed experience. And this is a really hard scenario for a single investigator because you have to straddle so many different areas uh, of the scenario in order to succeed. So, yeah, yeah, I think that it is, a, it is messy in the land of hooks here. For me, if we're talking about the spreading ooze, though, I think it almost fails in terms of the hook that it has. It's trying to develop almost, I think, like a pandemic idea of the spreading viruses or something like that. But I would, it just doesn't, it spreads in the course of two turns. It covers the whole board. And then it's just your standard scenario card effect that applies as a global effect. Why we had to also throw in this extra tracking that you have to do about the horror tokens using a track it it adds extra complication and adds extra tracking that you have to keep up with in your brain. And it it's over in like a turn or two and then everything's flooded and you're done. It, it, I'm happy with the idea of having the triplicate choice, but just make it a standard scenario effect without having this extra tracking. I can understand had this scenario been a larger scenario, that would have been cool. If it had been something like when we get back to the catacombs later on, it becomes this big sprawling area. That would have been nice there to have an idea of something slowly spreading, like a shadow spreading across the whole thing. Then it makes sense. But this one, it's over and it's done with, and it's just something more for you have to upkeep. Uh, I just didn't like that. I didn't like how that hook worked for me. 
I agree. I mean, partially because the scenario is, is so difficult, this is my most played. It's also the first scenario. I do like to do things standalone, as I have the time, but um, I have seen all three of the outcomes with multiple different investigators, uh, and more often than not, I forget about connectivity between locations, like which locations are adjacent. It is pretty clear once it's all on the table and you played it a couple of times, uh, but then remembering that this is connected to that, uh, I think it's also... Um, confused by the emissary. His ability works on his location and adjacent locations, uh, which is also frustrating. So you've got all of these sort of auras uh, on the table that you have to remember. Um, half the time I forget, and as a solo player, if you forget, you forget. And uh, I'm pretty lenient on myself. Uh, I know I'll, I'll do takebacks, I'll um, re-roll a, a token draw if I forgot you know, what my total was or something like that. So I'm really easy on myself uh, because I like having fun with the game. But yeah, so sometimes it's a little bit much when you realize two turns ago, you should have made a, an agility test uh, that would have taken away the action that you use that you to engage the monster, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then it's this whole rabbit hole where you're just like, got to like, you know, wash your hands of it and say, okay, I guess I'll move on. Mistake made. So I think that basically covers the idea of the complication of the rules. I think let's talk about mechanics gameplay. We've talked about this idea of the use filth. I think you've mentioned a bunch about the Royal Emissary. One other just side comment I want to throw in about the Royal Emissary. One of the mechanics that you're trying to do is that the second agenda in this scenario is really short. And the idea is that you have to go defeat the Royal Emissary to sort of turn back time and move back one. I wish it had been that the story mechanics had hit up the idea that you're turning back time and you somehow feel a sense of deja vu, but that's entirely left absent. That's my idea of how the story is presented that that time turns back, but there's nothing to actually support that in the gameplay. That aside, the mechanics of constantly pushing back by doing something, constantly doing the reset, that's a mechanic that I like, that I would prefer if that would start being a hook for something, that you're constantly having to go push a lever in this place, this place, you know, this seems reminiscent of some of the older NES, SNES games and 64 games that, you have to go and push this button, then push this button, this button, and then keep ticking around going and doing a bunch of things. And each time each of them is progressing, you have to keep going pushing back. I would love to see that become something more of a centralized mechanic for a later hook. We'll see if that ever comes up. But I did like that, and I wish that was more of a hook. It just didn't feel as major to me as the other things. Yeah, I think I would reiterate that, although I really do enjoy this scenario, if, if we were ranking all eight, uh, which I don't know if we'll end up doing, but... Uh, I, I've got my own rankings of these scenarios in order, um, but I think it's kind of sloppy. I, I think that it, it has a lot of great ideas in it. Uh, I think that it's really successful on a lot, in a lot of different things, um, but I, I kind of wish that this had been like a 1A, 1B kind of thing. Um, I don't know. In terms of the story, this one also introduces the idea of the stranger as a recurring character, but it doesn't give you much of it, so it's a nice tease to start leading you into it. It also starts developing the dichotomy that we're going on, this mental dichotomy of are you saying, are you not, to the rest of the one. Although when I was doing this for the blind the first time, I just assumed that we were in a blood world type yeah. area where there actually is this extra side world of things and you're actually visiting it. And it becomes a lot less clear as you go on, but the lack of clarity isn't really evident in this more, in, in this scenario. Yeah, I think that maybe that's compounded a little bit by the storytelling device, which I think is is not great, of uh, you get drowsy, you fall asleep, uh, and you wake up and everything's different. Um, 
So that's that's sort of yada yada yadaing over uh, some I think really powerful story elements that you could include of that that could begin to put the seeds uh, in the ground for some of these things that grow later um, that would cause you to doubt your own perception. And I think that uh, it's even compounded a little bit by some of the outcomes that you can choose uh, once you're successful in the scenario uh, about how you process what has happened to you. Uh, I think that any any person in this put in this position where you wake up and, and your entire perception of events is, is so radically changed from what you would expect, uh, and you're like, you see a dead person in a seat, um, like... I, I think that some of the outcomes of the scenario treat that as normal in a way that you wouldn't think is normal. Uh, and so I, I think maybe there's some, maybe, and maybe, you know, intentional, but I think there are some uh, uh, humps to get over there from a, you know, person enjoying the story kind of perspective. Yeah. And you were talking about ranking them. I'm probably not going to rank them. I tend not to do rankings on the podcast so much. But I will say that for me, this was probably the weakest scenario. <laughs> oh, wow. Jeez. Yeah, we're completely it was, it was probably the weakest scenario, um, just in terms of all that. But, you know, and it's a shame because to me, this is the first scenario. I prefer to have a much stronger start, but it is what it is. Uh, moving on to the next scenario, the last king, which is I'm going to call Party Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this one... The idea, the hook of what you're doing is you're going to the party of all the actors and you're trying to interview all of them to get certain pieces of information about the ongoing story and develop it for throughout the course of the game. And over the course of this scenario, there are going to be at certain times flipping to be their evil, corrupted, hostile side. Oh, take a whore. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, For me, in terms of this hook, I really liked this hook. This was a lot of fun. The gameplay mechanic of of having to go interview everyone with a bunch of different ways and develop what their story is and rush and get it done before maybe the guy you're almost done with flips or maybe someone else will flip and now they're going to start coming for you and you have to deal with a bunch of enemies converging on the location. And especially during your first run through the game that you it doesn't seem to you like there's any benefit in actually having the people killed. And so especially early on, you're trying not to kill them because you don't want to spend the actions killing them. You're trying to collect all the clues because that is the stated goal. But you're trying to avoid them and evade them and run around run around behind them, but they're still all coming for me. They're all converging while at the same time you're trying to just talk to people. That hook as it's developed and as presented, I thought was a really strong hook in this one. Yeah, I agree. I think the party makes a lot of sense. Um, I like that one of the uh, neutral cards available to investigators, so when you first pop this box, you might notice that there's some fine clothes. Uh, and it, you know, why would you, you know, go to the theater if you're not wearing your, your best clothes? Uh, I think that's really great. And it's a decision that making a investigator, especially playing through the first time, uh, you're gonna have to decide whether they've got their duds on or not. And so, you know, you show up to this party and you're, you know, William Yorick, still covered in fresh dirt from the grave, uh, or you're very nice in your jacket and tie. So in terms of how complicated this scenario, I don't think that this was a particularly complicated scenario. I don't think it had any rules that really threw us. So I'll move right into mechanics and the gameplay. I think that they made it really replayable 
about the different order that people can flip, the different locations that they can do, how they interact with the different locations. So even though you think, hey, it's the same six people every single time, no, it, it does really make it highly variable or same five people depending on how you look at it. Uh, it makes it really variable and diff- very playable about how it how you do it each time. Yeah, that phantom sixth person, Diane Devine, I think is maybe the one area where you might have new players or players that feel a little bit uncomfortable with the rules might have their first, um, I guess, head scratcher uh, because of the way that she will pop around the party. Uh, and so the first time that you read her, you're like, oh man, she's going to run around all the time. She's going to disrupt my ability to interact with these uh, party goers. And then you read her again and you realize that she'll like sit in the same room the entire time uh, if you can you know, play smart and you sort of play around her effect. Uh, so I think I've, I've seen a lot of questions about how she works exactly. Yeah, it's funny for her because she can either be very influential in this scenario or she can just not be in totally fluff. Yeah. So, and it's funny because I played twice solo with two very different outcomes for Diane Devine because the first time she just got stuck in a room was the first person I cleared and that person never flipped. But the second time, for some reason... Um, I cleared a person, and then that person flipped, so Diane moved on. Diane moved on to the place that was in the middle of clearing and made me go somewhere else, and then the other place I was doing flipped, so Diane now moved again and again blocked me, and so Diane just kept moving around that time. And she can be very influential, or she cannot be. I kind of wish there were a way to make her be more influential every time, but on the other hand, it's kind of nice that sometimes she doesn't and it hands you a freebie. So I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I support that. I think that like there, it is within the sort of ethos of the game to have these points at which the player can exert their skill. They can play well. They can understand the board state uh, and they can sort of engineer their own success. And it is also within uh, the you know Arkham Horror LCG to put you in a position where you can make all of the right choices. Uh, and you get screwed over and over and over and over. And you, you know, you draw tentacles from the bag. The person that you're interviewing in this scenario flips and, and Diane comes, uh, hunting after you, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And especially as a solo player, I do feel a little bit more where, uh, you can sort of like in the previous scenario, you can get drummed out really easily, uh, if the cards don't exactly go in your favor. Um, but I don't know, uh, it doesn't run me the wrong way in this scenario. Agreed. Um, in terms of the story, and here I'm going to mention about the art on these ones, because I kind of feel like art for a lot of this game is conveying the story. The art elements for the good and the bad side of these characters was spot on. Amazing. Good job to all the artists, the art design team of this one. Really well done. Really well conveyed in terms of how the story presents, how they all shift, how they all shift differently, the effects that they all have. Very spot on with that one. Really good. Yeah, I, I hope that somewhere someone out there is working on lenticular versions of this art so that you can look <laughs> at it one way, one way and, you know, it's the socialite in her uh, party dress with her champagne glass and you look at it another way and her spine is impossibly long and all of her ribs are separated and she's oozing gore. Um, yeah, I think that's it, it was really good. I also keyed into that. This was also the second campaign the second scenario excuse me in the deluxe box for this one this was a really good one to leave off of the deluxe box because it ends off with this question of you go back into the house and the house is normal do you want to burn down the house or do you want to believe that everything is normal and you end off with that and you're left that for a couple months until 
the next scenario comes out, or until all the scenarios come out, depending on how you purchase. That's a great way to end off the, the deluxe box. That's a great cliffhanger to be at, because then you're really stuck thinking in your mind for an extended period, are these good guys? Are these bad guys? Am I insane? Or is this really what's going on? That was the perfect way to finish off the box. Yeah, I also think it puts, especially if you're playing these raw, it puts you in a in a strange place to have the outcomes of the first scenario where you might choose to go contact the police or uh, you might choose to just sort of deny it all happened, sort of. Uh, and then you get here and you have a very similar choice. And, and I could see exactly what you were saying earlier, where you start out maybe doubting and then you go hard on conviction or vice versa. Like that could exactly happen here where you had this prior experience as both as a player and as an investigator in the game. And so now you have to make a decision knowing what your previous decision was. And so I think that having these two scenarios play together back to back in that way, uh, I think is, is also really nice in the box box. One other thing that is cool for this, just in terms of the campaign, you don't realize this in the original box. There's a lot of elements that are coming out of this that come out of play over the course of the game. We realize that each of these characters sort of has their tie in for each of the later scenarios and so that means that you're doing one scenario that continues to come up and up and up about how the campaign log affects each of the next scenarios. That was a neat way of having the campaign log and your choices affect the rest of the game like that. Yeah, I also think it uh, highlights how much of a, of a springboard this is into the, the final six. Uh, and I think it also, in the same way that Dunwich had its, you know, play these in either order, and it sort of feels like a group of two and then six um, following stories... I get this same thing, even though you have to play Curtain Call and then uh, Party Party. Um, you <laughs> have these two that work as a unit, and then you see, for the rest, these uh, echoes of this second scenario every time uh, it'll pop up. All right, moving on to the next scenario. Now we're moving on to Echoes of the Past, or as I'm calling it, the Shadow Men. And this one... The the bad guys, whoever these bad guys are, they're really never identified. But the bad guys are trying to seek out the same sort of information you are seeking out for some reason. And you've all met up at this, at the, it's not the Miskinaw Museum. The Historical Society. The historic, thank you. They've all met up at the Historical Society and you're all trying to get clues. So at the same time that you're getting clues, they're getting clues. And their clues come in the form of doom. So you're not getting your normal doom. As they investigate, air quotes, they are getting Doom, which is their version of Clues. How did you feel about this hook? I liked it. I also, having full knowledge of the um, campaign, uh, this is the first time that we see uh, Matt playing around with what Doom means and what Clues mean um, so aggressively. Uh, I think scenario one and scenario two are pretty much run of the mill in terms of like, yeah, get the clues, understand more about what's going on. And here now, uh, we don't have a, a sort of plot that's advancing behind us. We have, you know, another, a competitive set of enemy players, sort of, that are advancing the agenda on their own. And so uh, I, I thought that it was really interesting. I also like how it uh, gives, uh, although that's the first time that we see these, uh, this encounter set, it also sort of breathes additional life into these uh, enemies that gather clues from locations and then give you those clues whenever they die. Uh, because those clues turn into doom, you know, these cultists are never going to give up their, their secrets. So once they've learned them, they sort of are, are disappeared into uh, doom and are going to come back and bite you whether you destroy them or not. 
for me, I I agree with you. I really like the the idea of how we're doing. I like the mechanics of how we're doing it. I'm gonna I'm gonna skip a bit into story here. I liked what we were doing mechanically, but that's one reason why I'm calling this the Shadow Man scenario. They're they're sort of just there. They don't ever have a real presence in this scenario. You're never really confronted with them. We very briefly saw this guy, the Oath Speaker, but who is he? He's there for two minutes at the end of the scenario. He's never, he's not like the leader. He's just there. He disappears. He never comes up again later. I, I don't get a sense of character or a presence to these bad guys who are going around hunting. If it were an actual set of like rival investigators, I had my rivals here. The, the let's say Diana Stanley, the, the original Diana Stanley was coming around and she was in this set and she's going around collecting clues and there's an actual person that we're interacting with on the other side, that would have been spot on for me. But here, it's only the mechanics and the fact that the story fell so flat for me by not characterizing these people made it to me like it's just doom in the end. Yeah, I feel um, I feel of two minds. I think it, on one case, uh, I definitely hear that. I also, um, I think that they do this a couple of times where they have like a big bad burst in at the last minute to sort of um, rush, you. yeah, rush the end of the of the scenario. Uh, I'm not a big fan of that. I think it's real goofy. Um, you know, you put the card on the table, you read, oh man, look at all these big stats, and then you don't interact with it at all because it's you know got hunter and massive and it walks one uh, location and then you win, or it walks a couple of locations and you already have a path to victory, and so you just aggressively pursue it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's fine. On the other hand, um, if we want to take Matt at his word about how he sort of constructed this thing, um, the, the idea that some of it doesn't quite make sense both feeds into the idea that, you know, maybe there is something else going on that we're not perceiving on the face of things. So are these, these shadow men, uh, if they don't exist and they're, you know, figments of our imagination and we're locked up somewhere... Uh, start raving mad, then, you know, maybe there's a reason why some of these things don't quite make sense and why we see we keep seeing the same kinds of outcomes in these scenarios where, like, a big bad bursts in and, like, one of these partygoers shows up. Uh, you know, maybe that's our own mad minds feeding into us. I also think that that's a really crappy way to tell a story. I was going to so. say, I don't think that's a good excuse because when we get to Daniel later and when we get to Engram later, it's entirely not the same thing. And for those... It's just the same thing. Those, yeah. also, those are also figments of our imagination in large part. But they have strong characters to them, and there's no strong character here. Yeah. So, I don't know. That's the story, though. And I'm, I'm, I realize I'm taking this scenario out of order, may a couple listeners, but I'm going to continue to do it because now I'm going to mention something from the original overall thoughts that you mentioned. This idea of a big bad who just jumps out at you, which is the Oath Speaker in this case. Yeah, he just jumps out at you. I've never once been even encouraged to go take him on or get the tattered cloak item from him because the act is really pushing you to go get the clues from the hidden library and continue pushing that way. There's this other guy. He's got a cool item there. He's got cool mechanics with him, but I'm never even encouraged to go that route and go mess with him because I'm always already pushed this way. And he's neat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I agree. I think so. I, I played 
through this, I think, the third time, and I had opened this card, the Tattered Cloak, in the pack. I was like, wow, I had no idea how to get this, because I got the clasp twice. Um, and the... Pl playing with Mark, he's actually well-suited to go murder, uh, but it's also very difficult for him to find those clues. So even playing with a character that I think would benefit from the cloak, so he's only got the five printed sanity, um, he runs a lot of uh, either ablation, removal, or additional allies, so he's got a lot to lean on. Um, so it's really easy for him to trigger the uh, sanity threshold on the cloak. He loves all of those buffs, he loves having additional willpower. Um, even then, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't be uh, shifted off out of the passageway to to go and kill it. So, I mean, theoretically, I don't know if you need you need to advance the act deck to even make him come out, don't you? Mm -hmm. It's weird. It's weird that he pops up like that, as opposed to just scaring you with more doom or making him into another seeker type person. But he's not. He's a threatening physical type person. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I guess this is now that I'm thinking about it, like a, a sub theme. Uh, where you have these, you know, big bads come out, so the Emissary, and now this guy, and then later on some others, uh, and it's not super exciting to me. It doesn't serve a story purpose. It's just, I think it it's to have a cool card that comes out and has big numbers on it, I guess, but... I don't know. For the Emissary, I thought it was neat. I like doing the idea of the turn back time constantly and pushing that button constantly for the Emissary, but you didn't do that for this one. You never interacted with him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the emissary is printed is less interesting, but when he does interact with the uh, act and agenda decks is is pretty cool. So we've covered now about the hook, the rules, the story, and our overall. I don't think we've covered about mechanics and gameplay for this one. Um, in terms of how this one plays for me, we've messed around with how Doom works, which means that we're not getting that Doom each round. The Doom only comes from the bad guys. And they'll sit on it for a whole round before they can do something. To me, that meant that it's always really firmly in my control to go deal with that Doom and keep the scenario really low. There's a couple of cards in the encounter deck which can block you from doing that. But that's only if they manage to block you from doing that, especially since you get the cards and then the Doom accumulates in all the enemies. So it, it, it meant that for some of the times I was playing through this, game went really slow for agenda did you feel the same way with that yeah i think so uh, i also think this is a solo player problem uh i think that this scenario uh gets uh, uh like quadratically harder with uh more players so like playing true hand one solo you only see one uh, true solo one-handed uh you only see one card off that encounter deck and so it is either something that's going to manipulate the doom in play or it's going to be an enemy that might increase the doom which you can go deal with uh, or it's going to be some, you know, minor negative effect on you. Uh, playing with two hands, you only have to worry about uh, card one comboing into card two. Uh, so as a solo player, like, yeah, th th you almost have supreme control, which I think from my gamer side, I love it because it allows me to, you know, maximize my value uh, from a, like, tension in storytelling and gameplay aspect. It, it's not, it's it not means, tense at all. It means there's no threat going on. So I think we've covered just about everything for this one. So moving on from the Shadow Man, moving on to a Phantom, excuse me, moving on to Unspeakable Oath, which I'm going to call you mad, bro. <laughs> um, this one, you're venturing into an insane asylum. You've heard about this guy, Daniel Chesterfield, 
And so your goal is to go feed about Daniel Chesterfield and then go cause enough havoc in the asylum until you're able to escape. That's less of a mechanical hook and more of a story hook, which I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> the idea of having a story hook, as long as it's a compelling story, which Daniel Chesterfield was pretty compelling. When you had so many people coming out, and because this is a story hook, I'm mentioning story already, but because Daniel comes out and either you can fix him with the with the black the the black opal. Oh, black onyx. The black onyx clasp, excuse me. Because you kind of fix it, but you don't have it, or you can't even use it, a lot of people are like, well, wait a second, that that doesn't something's going wrong there. But no, that's exactly the feeling that the snake is trying to do. And so the story hook in this one is a really strong hook for when you're playing through it. And that's about the hook. In terms of the mechanics, because you know, even though we have a strong story hook, we still have to have the strong mechanics. The mechanics of this one are also quite strong, I felt. You have a lot of different aspects to go through. You have a lot of different options for where you can cause havoc. You do have to continue to get the clues, explore the random place to be able to find Daniel Chesterfield. In terms of how it played through, I don't think there was any strong, real new mechanics, but it was an excellent application of the mechanics that the game already has without creating anything new. We don't need to have brand new mechanics each time. As long as we continue to make strong applications of it, it's still going to make for a really strong game. So kudos on that mechanic as well, gameplay as well. You feel the same? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, this scenario reminded me a little bit of um, the Miskatonic University scenario in the Dunwich box uh, because it's sort of like what we know the LCG to be really effective at. You put some cards on the table, uh, you're presented with an initial mystery, uh, some areas are locked away from you, and so you know that you have to push things forward a little bit. This one felt a lot like a, which maybe this entire uh, campaign at some points, I think, really succeeds at. Um, it felt a little bit like a choose-your-own-adventure, especially because there are lots of levers on uh, different locations that you don't understand what happens when you pull them. So you can start a fight in the yard, but there's no there's no why would I start a fight in the yard Uh so there's no promise that that is even going to do anything. And I think that Arkham Horror has sort of trained us as players to both want to pull all of the levers and then also not want to pull all of the levers. And so you, I get the same sort of like doubt conviction dichotomy of just like, should I trust that the cards are going to present me with something that I'm going to want to interact with? Or is it going to be another, uh, you know, you steal the passenger's stuff on the train and that train car gets sucked off into oblivion uh, from like, uh, like in Dunwich and it doesn't matter at all. Or is it going to be this thing where, uh, Matt's going to punish you for starting a fight because people don't start fights in asylums or whatever. So I, I thought it was good. Yeah, we, we've we had those kind of twists both ways because we had another one here where if you did something, you're actually going to take mental trauma later on at a different point in time. So you never really know which way it's going. Yeah. When I played through this the first time, I saw all those triggers and I could start a fight. I could start a fire. I could let the insane guy go. I'm like, um, no, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. And then you realize, oh, I'm supposed to cause havoc and chaos. Oh, well, I guess I have to come back around and do all those things now. And that's a very good way to convey that story through good mechanics. Yeah. So it just continues to show that the core mechanics of the game are very strong. Um, one interesting thing, just a humorous anecdote from me. When you're setting up the game, you set up, there's a stack of lunatics that are going to slowly be coming out of the course of the game and then there's a stack of monsters that at one point in time may or may not come out um the first time i played through it as you're supposed to keep putting monster enemies in 
I kept pulling from the lunatics deck. And so they were slowly having a bunch of lunatics come. But when all the lunatics were supposed to come out, I shuffled all the monsters. And so I start playing this one. And so I'm, I, I'm looking at this and I'm like, how in the world are these guys coming up in the middle of this asylum? Like, what is going on? And so then I read through a bit slow. I'm like, oh, I've, I've kind of messed up and made things just a little bit harder on myself for not much reason. Yeah, I think that the setup of the scenario does invite that kind of mistake. When I first was preparing it, I didn't, I didn't set those decks up correctly. I, I understood what, what I was supposed to do, uh, but I just sort of like very quickly read through what was going on, uh, set everything up, I thought. Uh, and then I did something very similar to you, except for that everything was shuffled together. So I set aside the two decks, but I put them together. And so I was, you know, just putting a random lunatic or monster into the deck. Uh, and so I think that this is another issue like was in uh, Curtain Call with the putting horror markers on locations to mean a specific thing. Uh, yes, if you if you read the rules, uh, you should be able to understand exactly what's going on. Uh, but it's very clear that not everybody reads everything and not everybody reads uh, and understands everything the first time. So, uh, yeah, I think it's really easy to make that kind of mistake, and the scenario doesn't, uh, it doesn't help you not make that mistake uh, by sort of, you know, making it very clear what is going on here, what these decks should be, or providing additional markers, tokens, or any other support. It just tells you to put these things aside, which it often tells you with a lot of different things, so... I will say it's the rare game that I managed to get all the rules right the first time I play it. Mm -hmm. Another thing about the end of Unspeakable Oath. In this one, it's actually possible for your characters to be driven insane. If your characters didn't make it out, then your characters can be driven insane, left behind, and you move on with a different set of characters. And the story later on ties in pretty well about how that happens. They come in, they pick up the, the notes, and they continue to investigate into it. And I know Matt was talking in some of the other interviews about how he thinks that's probably a canon ending, that the cycle that keeps on continuing, someone else sees this and doesn't think, hey, maybe I shouldn't do this, everyone else is insane, but no, we're going to go investigate this and hopefully we won't go insane either. And so he thinks that's the best way of doing it. And I understand the story. I understand how that works. But for me as a player, that is frustrating. And here's why. I built a deck at the beginning of my campaign with absolutely nothing in it. And I've continued to, to get influence. I've continued to develop the deck so that my deck has a legacy to it. When you restart me from zero, my deck has no legacy to it anymore. The campaign guide has legacy, but my deck doesn't have any legacy. And if there would have been some way to build up some legacy, I don't know, maybe you keep one card from your old investigator like you're taking something from them and ignoring it or you get some amount of xp from the old investigator or some card like if there be a card in this one that you only get if it's a new investigator like say old investigator's notes and that becomes a part of your deck your deck itself has legacy but the fact that your deck doesn't have any legacy and you're starting back from scratch frustrates me to the extent that when I play it, and and I'll tell you the honest truth, I usually play two-handed. And I have when, when I've played two-handed, every single time, at least one person has been left behind. <laughs> they just have. Um, I'm okay with that. It makes for an interesting story. And it for me, it also allows me to experience new decks and play new things, which is also fun. But I've house-ruled and said that you get some bonus XP for your new deck. 
yeah. the legacy element that I'm talking about. I just want, I'm perfectly happy for Matt to continue having these these game ending or these these character ending type things. I like them in terms of story. I like them in terms of theme, theme and dynamic. I just want there to be some sort of deck legacy aspect for my new characters, and then I will be happy as a lark. Yeah, as somebody that doesn't necessarily have a lot of time to play as much as they would like to, uh, being five or six hours of headspace and table space into a campaign uh, and to have you know some amount of that progress erased, even though it's not truly erased, I'm still continuing, I'm playing through a cool story, uh, those pips of experience are fun and cool, and uh, starting a new character without those pips, uh, I can do that anytime that I want. I can always start a new campaign. But being four or five scenarios into a campaign and having those pips gives me access to new cards, to new and interesting combos. It also puts me in a, a deck building position where my deck may not be exactly what I want it to be. So there may still be these weird uh, fits and starts combos where I might have a, a low value of something, uh, like low pip value first aid or something where that might be in play. And then I have this higher experience version that I've drawn later. Uh, do I want to put into into play as well, et cetera, et cetera. Like those kinds of weird decisions. If you just erase my progress, I'm never going to have those. Um, I will say that I have not, like, because I play one-handed, it doesn't matter to me most of the time. Uh, but the threat of that, I think, is really scary. I'm also the kind of gamer that likes collecting and accruing. Uh, and so to, to see some of my, you know, pile of uh, dirt kicked away is uh, is really frustrating. Uh, so, yeah, I agree. It's It's tough. All right, so I think that basically discusses the end of the Unspeakable Oath. Let's move on to A Phantom of Truth, or Onward to France. Um, you have all of France to explore in this one. I think for this one, the hook is really that it's almost like there's two scenarios here. As you're exploring France, depending on whether you've gone the doubt or conviction route, different things are going to start happening. There's the, the main bad guy, the organist. He's going to do two totally different things if you're horror conviction. Is he going to be chasing around after you and you have to run down time? Or are you going to have to be going up, confronting him, messing around with him in order to get him to back down if you're going the, the doubt route? And it's almost like they, they included two different scenarios. They play so totally differently in the course of this one. Neither one of them are bad. And if each one of them would have been a scenario by themselves without the idea of having two in there... I would say there's probably not any new mechanical hook to them. I would say there's not any new gameplay elements to them. But they squished them both together, which is neat. Yeah. With all the same mechanics, all the same locations and cards, but played entirely differently. Yeah, I think that's the strength of this campaign is how replayable it is. Um, I am the kind of gamer that always starts a new game and says, oh, I'm going to do it this way. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll you know, start, start my new Skyrim game and like I'm not going to be... Uh, a mage, I'm going to be a two-handed fighter, and I'll end up being a mage anyways. Uh, and that's exactly what happened This in, in this. I always like start out and be like, okay, I'm going to be super doubt. I'm going to go through, I'm going to do all the doubt. So I've never actually played this campaign. I uh, In preparation for this, uh, and also because I like reading through the different avenues anyways, you know, choose your own adventure style, uh, I read through all of the different outcomes. But uh, most of the time I end up here uh, full conviction, <laughs> uh, super believing in, in what's going on, uh, and so the organist is just this uh, implacable force uh, chasing after me. So uh, I, I, I guess maybe 
from what you're saying, I should probably go back and play through it again. Try to do it, try to just do a standalone of this one at full oh, sure, sure, sure. Just do yeah. a standalone of it, select out, just to see yeah. how it plays. And it plays totally differently because you have to go up there, you have to evade him, you have to keep putting clues on him. It does something totally different. Interesting, yeah. Um, that's in terms of probably both the hook and the mechanics of this one because the mechanics are really different. It did have this idea of a railway that goes through with it, which struck to me like um, sort of Fury of Dracula type thing about this railway for a fast travel element to go through it. I'd like to see more of that, especially with these big sprawling places. I thought that was an interesting way of getting across the map fast. A little bit of extra resources cost. That was a nice thing to throw in there. A small little new mechanic that we did have in play. Um, in terms of the story, this was the first story with the dreams aspect to it, that before we introduced it to you, you had to read through a set of dreams. Those dreams weren't all in order. They're sort of disconnected. And you're trying to understand what's going on with those dreams and how it has you go through and play through the next one. Those dreams fit perfectly with this campaign. It's not my preferred storytelling method, but they fit very well with the campaign. So I'm not going to fault it any at all for that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think that everybody, there, there are lots of, of Easter eggs, I think, in this campaign, um, which I, I don't know if we'll go over or if we'll leave to the listener to, to search out, but a lot of them are very fun. Uh, I, one of them is plainly obvious. Uh, the first dream is not dream one, uh, and there is a wink from the creator uh, there on the page. Uh, and I think that this campaign does a good job of confusing in a good way the investigator and the player um i also think that it fits in with the background mythos of the king in yellow etc etc uh just as a uh person a, a god in the in the mythos so i think that these dreams speaking both directly to the player and also being experienced by the investigator i think it's it's cool uh, i also agree that it is clumsy to bounce around and uh you can spend a lot of uh, headspace, not necessarily experiencing the story. I'm trying but, to figure out what the story is telling you. Yeah, and, and bouncing around in the dreams, it sort of interrupts you in the way that you're thinking. I almost, like, if, if I had access to a plain text version of these scenarios, I would, like, cut it up and be able to read it as a single paragraph uh, because I can't, I can't tell you what most of those individual dream segments uh, is for memory. I can tell you what the outcome is, like the last dream uh, that you read because that actually has like a choice that you make in it. Uh, I can tell you all about that one, but the other ones, I, they just like slide off me, which is I think a product of just too much mind space, being a solo player, keeping track of what's going on with each of these, and also making sure that you find the right next dream to read. Otherwise what doesn't make sense makes even less sense. I agree. Yeah. And, but again, it fits perfectly with this, with the campaign. So yeah. cool. Um, in terms of another piece of storytelling element, um, Engram, or even if you just meet Engram's house, both of those were really good story pieces, I thought, especially really with the Engram story itself. The idea that you meet him and then sort of time shifts and he's quite dead. Or the idea of seeing the house and he's already here. Both of those were story moments that lasted in my memory for the first playthroughs of both versions of them. Very well done with the storytelling. Again, really advancing the theme that we built up for this campaign. In terms of another idea, just in terms of the overall for me, um, there's a couple scenarios that people tell me or people have asked about um, for testing decks. I think this is a very good scenario 
for testing decks, especially if you're building your deck and then randomly picking doubt or conviction, because it really forces you to uh, involve a lot of different tests, a lot of different types of things that you have to do. So you have to diversify and do different things, but you don't always necessarily know what you're doing in it and how it's going to play out. And it sends you across a pretty dynamic map. So I think there's a lot of things going on that make it a really fun scenario for testing, which I think is almost like a nice high watermark for a scenario that I think is really strong mechanically. Uh, moving on to the next scenario for me, the Pallid Mask, which I'm going to be calling Dungeon Quest. Um, in this one, you're now going down, you're exploring the catacombs, and the map is, in terms of the hook, the map is going to be dynamically built. There's no connections in this one other than just an up-down, right-left connection, almost like you would think of your old Dungeon Quest-type games. And you get to build a map, and you get to actually make some certain amount of selections for how you make the map, which ways you want to go, how you want to build the map. And there's a lot of really interesting things that's going on with that new mechanic. Um, did you think that mechanic is easy to understand, would be easy to understand for perhaps less experienced players? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think that because it relies on spatial relationships rather than trying to match uh, symbols, I actually think it's easier to understand connectivity in the labyrinth uh, than it is in uh, Curtain Call. Uh, the fact that you can't jump up the balcony, but you can jump down, I think it's going to trick a lot of players on their first playthrough. But in the labyrinth, it's everything. North, south, east, west is adjacent. It's, a com it's an easy rule to apply, and it makes sense spatially, so... I, I've seen some people talking that they're confused that this one works so differently. But for me, I, I think that I thought it was easy enough for me. I didn't see any issues with it. So I didn't think it was particularly complicated. But I, and I thought it was a really interesting hook to, to be able to bring in how it works so differently. I also thought in terms of mechanics and gameplay, moving on to the next aspect of the rubric, I thought that because you have the ability to build your map and there's a good number of hunter enemies and there's things you have to do in different places of the map. As you build the map, you have a lot of control over it, so you can really choose how you're kiting the enemies through it or, or drawing the enemies through the map as it lays out or how you're exploring through the map or where you're hoping for things to come out. And there's a lot of control. You have a lot of extra buttons and dials for you to push with, which when you have things that you can use well, and again, I'm, listeners know that I'm always a fan of games that promote you to do intelligent gameplay and let you feel like you're using intelligent gameplay. I think this one really did that quite well. Yeah, I think the one drawback for me is the token in the bag that um, you start when you, when you initially set up, you have this card that tells you when you draw this token, you get a, a penalty based on your distance from the entrance. And distance is calculated in a you know a, a Manhattan distance. I'm two blocks down, three blocks over, or whatever. Um, so that distance can get pretty large depending on the number of uh, locations that you draw and how far away you are. You might be a minus six or a minus seven or even higher. Uh, that's well, pretty brutal. And standard, a max is a five. Max is a five. Um, so I wish that that wasn't printed on a card that was in place. I, like, I wish that came up in like the agenda deck on agenda two or something like that. Um, that you know the token has this additional penalty now uh, because I think that that puts a block in me from the beginning that I don't, like, I want to make sure that the labyrinth is uh, kept close together. So I end up building squares or rectangles a lot, and that to me is not a labyrinth. When it, when every room is connected to every other room, uh, eh, I wish it was more winding, or, or, or that there was an incentive to make it more winding mechanically, 
uh, and there wasn't this sort of like blanket pressure to make it small, orderly, and uh, and close together. Interestingly, I haven't had that option. <laughs> uh -huh. For me, I usually have a couple things that I go this way, or I have a loop going around, or I have this one going off there. I don't think I've had that option to keep things quite so interesting narrow, but I suppose each of their own. In terms of the story for this one, if you're reading through the resolutions of this one, there's three basic resolutions, and each one of the stories is quite different about what you're doing. And it's really quite different because of how the, the story goes through the course of it, about if the stranger is helping you out, if you have to confront the stranger, if you just go insane and lose. Because based on each one of those, you're doing something almost entirely different. Are you just taking an act of desperation and reading the play? Are you being an actual researcher and calling your friends and then just having a dream? Or are you jumping in a hole and experiencing a psychedelic vision and realizing what you have to do? But like each of these are, are different levels of sanity. But I didn't see that come through in future campaigns. If you're the cogent researcher, you appear quite sane in that version of it. The other ones, you don't appear sane at all. Yeah. But you appear quite sane. And yet I don't see that carrying over to future campaigns. I don't see you saying, hey... I'm still quite sane because I'm being coached researcher. I'm acting sane. I don't see that continuing on. I didn't see any of that mental dichotomy with this one either. This one really continues to push you like this all seems to be what's happening. Even in the one where you're having a psychedelic vision, there's nothing in it suggesting that it's fake because you got underground and then you pop back up above ground unless the whole thing is, but we've never had them to that degree. I didn't see the mental dichotomy coming out of it. I didn't see the lasting repercussions coming from it. Yeah. I think in the way that the way that this scenario presents itself with the labyrinth and the way that monster, like this is another instance where you have a big bad that pops up, um, that is going to hunt you through the labyrinth. Um, yeah, like, I don't know. I think it's successful to me as a as a scenario, but and especially because I go full conviction every time because I'm a doofus. Um, <laughs> you know, I always jump in that hole and and have a have a trip. So, yeah, I, like, does this scenario succeed to me on on like a storytelling level? No, I think that maybe this has uh, got um, act two problems of just uh, it sort of slumps in that. There was, we need to have eight scenarios. Uh, wouldn't it be cool if we're in Paris if we go to the catacombs because those should loom large because it's a spooky game? Um, I also think that like there are a lot of rooms in the labyrinth that are really cool. Uh, and so it's really cool to explore all of those different elements. Uh, but yeah, at the end of it all, you know, shrug. Uh, I think that it could be tied together better. Um, I think that maybe this is an issue of having a person that's a very competent game designer and really loves the material that this stuff is based on also being put in a position where he needs to present a story like this uh, and you can't be all things to all people, uh, especially on, you know, an FFG salary, so. <laughs> I don't know. I think that's a, I don't know, it's a tough thing because the story in any one of them would be good. It just doesn't tie in further. Like, the writing's good. The elements of the gameplay in this one are good. I just don't think it took it quite the degree that some of the other, camp the other scenarios have here. Like, 
take it back to the to party party take it back to last king that one was really good really good writing and really good repercussions from it and i just didn't see that quite that same level of polish conveyed through to here so i don't know it, it, i don't think it's a matter that you can't be all things to all people i just think that this one just just didn't have quite that last level yeah i wonder if having the component of the story cards um and having those those flippable um people that you're interacting with if having that mechanic tied to it and the pressure to you know have it all fit on a card have it make sense later the idea that these people are going to pop up later uh one per scenario if having all of that hanging on that port that part of the story uh doesn't enhance it and here um because you just need an ending to a scenario um and it sort of needs to fit in uh in the way that it feels uh with the rest of the campaign if maybe that just it's a loose end and you can't tie them all together all right i think we've spoken enough about the story here for this scenario let's move on to the next one black stars rise in black stars rise the idea is that there's going to be two agendas for it you've come up you're trying to figure out which way has a portal to this to carcosa it's either in the sky or the sea and you're not sure so there's two agendas one for the sky one for the sea and theoretically in one of them is the key for you to get your act deck so that you can actually win the campaign the scenario but you don't know which and you have to keep putting doom out on one of them both of them maybe in order to be able to get through in order to be able to get through it for me i thought this was a really amazing hook i loved this hook i really liked it when i was playing through the first time in my blind run through because for me when i set up the whole thing i didn't know what to do and i'm slowly just building trepidation as the doom counts increase and bad things continue to happen and there's the encounter cards that get worse and worse as you get more and more doom on these things but you still don't know how to do it because even though i understand the idea that somewhere somehow i'm going to get an act card i don't know how i'm going to get that act card i don't really see it and it builds such a level of trepidation in me the player which meshes so well with the emotions that the game is meant to evoke that i really really appreciated the hook and how it was conveyed in this one i thought it was so well done yeah i think it's great i think that uh, and I think Matt has talked extensively on some of those other podcasts about designing this scenario because it is such a unique, it, it plays with the expectations of the player in such an aggressive way because it just takes away something that you've been relying on, which is there's my plot that I'm pushing forward and then the, there's the plot of the game working against me. And now it turns out in this that um, you are going to have to advance because the plot of the game it doesn't, it's not going to tell you anything. So, um, yeah, I think it's really great. I think it puts the player in a position where they, and, and Matt even gives you handholds in how to interact with these agendas uh, because there's uh, some sweeteners for pushing things artificially. You can get some cards or some resources. And so the fact that um, I think sometimes in Arkham Horror, you can just sort of shrug your shoulders and say, uh, well, one seems as good as the other, uh, so we'll just pick. But here... Uh, there, there's uh, something tangible that you can think about, like, do I want a card if I push this forward? Like, after you've decided to push something forward, do I want a card or do I want a resource? Uh, do I think it's above or below? Like, that idea, I think, is really successful because it gives you a mechanic reason to push something forward if you don't have a story reason, which, if you are in that 
you know, feeling that trepidation of, I, I don't know what's next, I don't know what's going on, just giving you that handhold as a player to be like, okay, I'll just pick this one because I have no cards in my hand. So I'll just get some cards or something. Uh, also in our multiplayer campaign, the fact that we were playing super greedy and uh, we spent a bunch of clues and then had to spend turns and turns and turns uh, putting more clues on the board, uh, I also think is exciting because um, it punishes the player for maybe not necessarily thinking ahead, or if they are thinking ahead, it makes them spend a lot of time doing something. Uh, I know that we had one player uh, get a little frustrated because we were we were real goofy and we put a bunch of clues and putting additional uh, doom on the agendas, and then we get stuck at the gate, not being able to walk through uh, because we don't have the clue uh, clues to uh, to do it. So we have to spend rounds and rounds just generating new clues because we were so greedy. Well, let's actually talk about that for a second because I also want to make mention of this. Because there's no act in the beginning of it, usually you're getting clues, spending them towards the act. There's no act in this one. So sort of to give you somewhere to spend clues or to give you a requirement to get clues, there's two halves to the scenario in terms of locations on the board. And in order to open up the second half of the board, you have to get a certain number of clues. But nothing at the beginning, unless you go and read every single location, excuse me, unless you go and read every single location, you don't notice that you need to go spend those clues there. The place that you normally look to is over on the Act Agenda decks, which are just Agenda decks, which give you a place to spend clues. So I, it's really hard, I think, to notice that spot where you need to spend clues. And I really wish that something more visibly obvious in the beginning would have told you about that. Somewhere on maybe the starting location, like a flavor text in some location, or like you get a boatman that brings you over there. If he would mention, oh, by the way, you're going to need to figure out a way to get in there, just have a mention in a flavor test, or even probably, in my opinion, the best way would have been to have a mention of it in the setup, just a say, hey, note, you will require clues to get these locations into play and put it in the setup instructions. None of that happened. Like, I'm actually considering, for those who don't know, um, I am trying to put this together in a half-width campaign guide because I put my box... Um, in a single, I, I repackage my boxes so they fit nicely in this. If the campaign guides were instead three and a half inches wide instead of seven inches wide, so it fits nicer in the box. So I'm redeveloping a set of custom laid out campaign guides to better fit in my boxes. So I've had some other quality of life additions I put into it, various things. So I'm really strongly like putting, strongly considering putting a note in my version of the campaign guide saying, hey, look over there. Don't miss it. You're going to need clues there, just so I don't forget about it. I'm if, if I'm thinking about changing something myself, that probably really shows I'm thinking something was really missing to highlight that was there. Yeah, I think one, one thing about the wonderful graphic design uh, and art uh, is that sometimes uh, beige and uh, uh, sepia tones can blend in. Uh, I, I'm red green colorblind. So a lot of those color markers that might indicate like, hey, look over here, sometimes blend in the background for me as well. Uh, and this game, everything is, is beige. <laughs> so uh, yeah, there's like, you have to sit down, read the card, understand what that means exactly and how that is functioning. Um, and there's nothing necessarily that tells you that this is a place to go other than spending the clues. And you also on the agenda decks already have a way to spend clues. Um, so this might be something that you, it doesn't occur to you um, to that this is going to be something that you're going to want to do until after you've flipped all of the other places and maybe you've already spent some of those clues. So yeah, it makes sense. 
Another couple of quality of life things that I would prefer to have in this one is I had to go look up and ask. It says that whenever you're putting Doom on the active location, you can pick uh, active agenda, you can pick which one. I kind of wish it would have said even the Doom that you normally add during the Mythos phase. Like a couple of words would have meant I wouldn't have had to look it up. I wonder how many people had to go look up that line. Yeah. Um, one other quality of life is there's normally the game is pretty good about giving you suggested setups for all the cards. Because half of them don't come out to later, there's no suggested setup. It could have put that. And this is what I'm definitely including in my campaign guide. It just didn't have those. It's just some quality of life things I feel like could have been involved. Um, in terms of the story, and I, this kind of leans over into the, the story falling apart a little bit back over when we were in the, in the catacombs. When we start doing the story here, it keeps referencing the fact that you had this research and the research confuses you and you don't understand what to do because of the research and that's all true for me i don't understand what i'm doing but it kept mentioning this research almost like i did research i didn't do any research <laughs> was it talking about reading the the play so about having a psychedelic dream like what research is it talking about here why is it if it would have said your understanding great but it didn't it said research again i'm not sure if this is quality of life or just the fact that the storytelling Maybe the storytelling got a revision and didn't match later what happened. I don't know. But it jarred me, the fact that they keep mentioning it. And in a story that otherwise has been continuing to develop well, it just continued to jar me that one little bit. And I think that basically covers everything we have for this scenario. Moving on to the last scenario, Dim Carcosa. And for this one, the hook for it is each of the locations starts revealed. And at least once you're up to the second act, um... As you clear off all the clues for them, you clear them off and they have some story text, which by and large lets you do damage to Astor, who's the big bad at that point in time. And I thought this was a pretty interesting hook. I thought that the writing and the effect of all those things was really interesting. The fact that they all do something different, that they all have tie-ins to past things that you've done or tie-ins to what's happened here. You know, it, it felt like a video game playing out. You know, you do this and something big dynamic happens. Normally it's like, you punch him. Token. <laughs> this one, the cool stuff happened. And that was really neat. I really liked that. That was a great way to have a climax of the whole scenario. Very cool. Yeah, I think that I can't go by and not um, point out the uh, small paragraph leading into the scenario that states that investigators do not lose uh, to uh, sanity. Uh, or if, uh, if they hit zero uh, sanity, they don't become insane. Uh, that to me is awesome to have the last campaign, like the last scenario in your campaign be so pivotal and it still ties in. So it's this mechanic way to express that, you know, you're in Carcosa now, uh, you know, like the fact that you can have 20 or 30 horror on you from all the terrible things that you've seen, but the place is so twisted and warped that, you know, you're just normal. And so you can walk around, you can def- defeat uh, the king in yellow or, or however you want to spin that. Uh, you can see all of these things and, you know, you're whip- you're twisted and warped, but eh, who cares? Keep going. Uh, that to me is, is, uh, is incredible. In terms of complicated, I think that, again, this wasn't a particularly complicated scenario. I think it was pretty easy to understand how to do all these things and how to interact with all of them. Although, um, for some reason, I have difficulty not immediately rushing into just grabbing those clues and unlocking them even before I'm supposed to do it, things yeah. like that. I keep making that error, even though I've learned that I shouldn't make that error. I did it blind. I did it for like my third playthrough again. And I just keep, it keeps coming up for me for some reason. 
And it just should have. I don't know why I keep making that error. Um, another thing, did you have any issues about when you flip over a location, so you after you get the ones that actually do damage to the bad guy, um, you can't, you, you flip it over and you never flip it over back in. Did you ever get confused about, oh, did I do it yet or did I not? Yes. Uh, so I was playing for uh, for preparation here. I was doing this one standalone. Um, and I got interrupted in my play, which, you know, was going to happen. And so I sat down, played for 20 or 30 minutes, had to go do this other thing for an hour, uh, came back and realized that I didn't know what exactly I had done. Um, and so this is a situation where, you know, put a horror on this location to show that you cannot flip it back over. Like, they've already introduced this mechanic of, of using tokens to represent markers on things in play. Why they didn't bring it back again for this doesn't make sense to me. Uh, it's something that I'm going to do in the future. I'm just going to put a penny or a horror marker or whatever uh, on locations that I flipped. Um, yeah, it didn't... Uh, that, that was actually really frustrating to me. It, I did, it had not occurred to me at all that I wouldn't remember. But yeah, like being interrupted as a solo player and then having to come back and not having the game state be accurately represented can be a doozy. Yeah, I feel much the same. And I feel like the, it could have been fixed. Minor quality of life, but yeah, it could have. Um, another piece of the, uh, of the mechanics here. Hastor could be defeated either by just straight up punching him or by going and taking the time to investigate. You don't really need to investigate a great deal. You can investigate the one main load, the central location, because you have to find the secret to, to get him. So you have to do some amount of investigating. You theoretically have to do some amount of punching because I don't think you can get enough damage just from all the locations. But you can push it one way or the other based on which one you're better at, which was an interesting way to do it. It means that every every investigator has an avenue toward victory that they can take. Um, I kind of wish that maybe some of the punching would just sort of trigger some of the extra story things or something else like that because they're so cool. <laughs> but if you're doing a lot of punching and you only ever investigate the one location, which is quite possible, you miss out on so much. Yeah, I think a lot of the callbacks, and maybe this is, you know, ties into replayability. Um, I would say that this is the most replayable campaign that we've seen. Um, of the two that we've seen. Well, I mean, I'm, in, I'm including Knots here, which is just uh, Night of the Zealot, which is just, like, it's infinitely replayable because it was the only thing that we had for, <laughs> you know, nine months or whatever. Um, but the, like, this campaign, to me, is replayable on the doubt and conviction side of things i think that you can you know as we've said in this conversation you can be a player that's played multiple times and still not have seen certain elements like the tattered cloak or the uh the other side of the organist um and so maybe this ties into a re replayability thing where i'm the kind of person that whenever i get finished if i have the time i'm going to read through all of the outcomes and think about oh i wish i'd done it that way and then i'm also going to flip everything over that i didn't already see and I'm going to read through those things. So I would still experience those things. But uh, one thing that that uh, puts, or one place that that puts me in is uh, I will be consuming a lot of this content uh, in, you know, 20, 30 seconds, as opposed to seeing it parceled out over the course of an hour. So it's a lot less impactful. Like, oh, that's cool. Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> as opposed to seeing it in the scenario uh, and being like, oh my God, I just pushed that woman off a ledge or whatever. Um I think I still haven't actually seen all of them because I haven't done that. But each of their own. 
Um, one other aspect of the story that that perhaps wasn't so clear to me. In this one, you finally get to figure out who the stranger is. And there's three different versions of who the stranger is. But these are not represented in story. These are represented in picture. And I will tell you the honest truth. I looked at these pictures and I'm like, what, in, what, is, what is going on? I don't get it. And I actually had to go reference people who talked about online. Like, what's going on? Like, one of them, you're holding the mask. Like, what happened? These could have been really cinematic moments. And it could have been... You know, when I play it with someone else who hasn't done it, I describe for them the cinematic idea of what's going on. That as you're taking, as as you watch the man take off your mask, your vision blurs and twists, and you you start to see double, and you're both looking at the mask and looking through the mask until, as the mask comes off in your hands, you realize that you were the man in the mask the whole time, and then you have the mask in your hand, and you are the man in the mask. And it could have had that be a story moment, and I feel like that could have been a really cool thing to say. I understand you are limited in the amount of card space that you have. I get that. And some of the surprises wouldn't have been such a surprise if it said at the beginning of the game, set aside the pallid mask item. I get it. But still, I just think that the, all so much of the story text in this game is really well written. And I think that's, you know, that is that is due to Matt. Credit where credit's due. But I just feel like this could have been a point that could have had better story for it. I agree. Um, so I, I played through this. Um, I looked at those pictures like cool art. Uh, I think that there are some things that really strike me in this game. Uh, I will go on record as saying that the Arkham Files is not exciting to me for the most part. I don't really engage with Lovecraft. Um, I like a lot of the ideas of this stuff, so it's cool. Uh, I would rather this be uh, Lord of the Rings 2.0, uh, to be super honest, because I super love fantasy. Uh, so, like, most of the time I just look at the art like, oh, cool, art. Uh, and it takes somebody like you, Julius, or um, listening to another podcast in order to put me in the mind to go back and look at these, this thing and then think about the implication of what that is. And I'll say that I didn't get any of the outcomes like, oh, cool, the man, um, until I'd listened to some of those other podcasts and I'd heard them talk about it, with, which, like, they're different players than I am for the most part, different kinds of players, I mean for the most part, and they have the literal designer of the game talking them through some of this stuff. And so, like, there are lots of things coming to light that either don't impact me at all or I would never have thought to investigate on my own anyways, so. And I, I think that I'm helped because, actually, in terms of fiction, my favorite genre of fiction is actually urban fantasy, which is fantasy in a modern-day setting. But noir fantasy, which is exactly what this is, that is the genre we're in, which is a fantasy setting sent in a noir theme in the noir setting and that's a that's a that's a genre that i also very much like the arkham files setting i'm going to say the arkham files setting for the most part it really is except that they have to keep mentioning all of the great old ones because that's their thing but we saw from things like ruguru that it's not only about that you can have a lot of the noir fantasy settings and types that play through it and i think we'll see more of this as we continue to come out that it's still going to be about wizards or survivors, even the idea of a survivor coming up against a battle with a bunch of vampires trying to get over the world, is very much something that we could put into an Arkham Files type quest. And that's that's something that I would really like as much as I would like it. So for me, I have to say that the theme and the setting, they do excite me, and I do really much enjoy them, which is why I like pulling out all the story from all of them. So I think that pretty much covers all of the scenarios. I think that we've made all the way through it. Um, Overall thoughts of the whole thing? Uh, I think it's great. 
Uh, I've said this before, but I'll put a bow on it. Uh, I think it's the best campaign so far. I'm excited for Forgotten Age. Um, but, you know, if, if this is a high watermark for me, uh, hopefully things will continue to go up. Um, I love a lot of the mechanics. I think some things are kind of doofy, but uh, I think Dunwich has more of those moments. And I think that uh, Night of the Zealot is not rich at all in any of these moments because it's just trying to present what this game is supposed to be on its face. Uh, so yeah, I think it's great. I love the different elements that come back and back and back, like the class, like the stranger. Um, I love the, uh, especially, uh, so talking again about the hidden mechanic, uh, at the end of Dim Carcosa, uh, there are some outcomes with, uh, cards that you may have acquired, uh, in your hand through the hidden mechanic that I think are great, and they sort of, um, they present the events of the campaign to you in a completely different light, especially if you're not familiar with uh, the like King and Yellow mythos uh, and you're not as steeped in it as uh, somebody like Matt, uh, who is like, this is his favorite stuff, is. So yeah, I think it's it's a home run uh, and I'm looking forward to you know some more big bats in uh, Forgotten Age and hopefully it'll, uh, it'll continue to uh, really hit home for us. I'm going to echo much of the same, right? This was an excellent campaign for me. I really enjoyed a lot of what was coming out of it. I thought it was a great gameplay, excellent mechanics, excellent story, excellent theme, excellent art. Really good the whole way through. I think we've talked about maybe you know some five points, some quality of life, some things that we didn't like going through it, but that doesn't hamper that for me in terms of the overall one. This does nothing but make me more excited to see what else matt and the rest of his team have in store for us coming out we've got forgotten age coming out and i'm excited about a lot of the things that we see coming out i like the idea of the vengeance i like the idea of having the evade i like having the treasure hunting that's coming in i like some of the new player cards coming out i don't don't expect to ever hear on this podcast a review of the player cards i don't think it'll ever happen but i like and i'm excited about a lot of player cards a lot of mechanics a lot of things that we're doing about it i see this game continuing to get stronger and stronger and I fully expect for you guys to hear more from us. We'll be back in eight months to talk about the Forgotten Age, assuming the release schedule holds through. Uh, we'll be back in eight months to talk about Forgotten Age. So look forward to hearing more about this from me. Uh, if you want to talk to me more about this, about Arkham Horror, about anything else, you can come find us on our Discord. If you want to hear more about Arkham Horror card game content, I'd recommend you go check out, again, either the Mythos Buster podcast or the Drawn to the Flame podcast. Uh, you could chat with me more over on their Discord. I'm pretty active over there as well, in addition to on our Discord. A uh, good place to find me or ask me about any of the other quality of life type boosts that I've been creating because I love this game and I like making more components because, you know, I continue to keep pouring some so much of my energy into the game. So thank you very much to Matt. I really appreciate you. I appreciate what you've done with this game. And just a big thank you to you as the designer for making this game something we can enjoy. Thanks for listening. We love feedback, so we love hearing from you. You can reach me at Julius at OnePlayerPodcast.com or JLBird on BGG. And Albert can be reached at Albert at OnePlayerPodcast.com or Fractaloon on BGG. Our website is OnePlayerPodcast.com with the number one, and we're also on Twitter at OnePlayerPodcast. The intro music is copyright Angus, can be found at Gemendo.com. The transition music is copyright by Dan Elduce Pancaldi, whose page is at donpancaldi.com. The One Player Podcast is protected under a Creative Commons share-alike license. Thanks for listening.